1: to the Philacrosophy podcast. And today our topic is a very interesting one. Um, and it's multi-sport athletes. It's being a multi-sport athlete. What does it mean? Um, is it good? At what point would you decide to be a single sport athlete? And all of these questions. Um, Terry, uh, great to have you on the show. Um, How do you think we, how do we get to this topic, by the way?
0: So I think it's one of the most, I don't want to say polarizing, but maybe hot button topics on social media, because I think that it brings a lot of different stirred emotions to the table. I think there's a lot of nostalgia and romanticizing the past that, you know, former athletes that are in their 50s, 40s and 30s bring to the conversation and and want to see the next generation of athletes experience that they got to experience. I think that there's a lot of tension among parents in terms of the proper direction to steer their children's athletic development. And I think that there's a a general lack of consensus over exactly what are the benefits and detriments. And I think that there's, that last part is probably where, you know, we're going to be best served to spend the majority of this conversation because, I think that that lack of consensus is where there's like an opportunity for reasonable minds to disagree on what a good approach should be. Right. Like, so I think, you know, this, the most recent example of this um, conversation occurring on social media that involved you and me came up uh, when inside lacrosse was hosting one of our events this fall and the father of a, of a player whose team was playing in the event Um, but he wasn't able to go because he had a football game basically highlighted what is able to be perceived as the contradiction, which is college coaches say they like to recruit multi-sport athletes, and then they go to events in the non-traditional season. And I think that there's a lot of meat on the bone relative to that conversation, but I do think that there's some room to point out that hypocrisy depending on what your point of view is relative to how this ecosystem operates.
1: Right. And then there's a lot of debate over, you know, in all sports as to whether early specialization is going to give you an edge to get to where you want to get to, or if it's better to be a generalist and do a lot of things and then specialize later. And I think we can also touch on, you know, what does that even mean? When is that? You know, <laughs> being a multi-sport athlete, should that be through eighth grade? Does that mean until 10th grade? So through high school, it's probably going to be a little bit different for each person. But let's, let's, let's go back and sort of look at the big picture here. Um, why, why do we want our kids playing sports, right? Uh, because it's fun and it's, it's, it's play, it's competition, opportunities to learn leadership and teamwork and learning how to play a role, goal setting, sacrificing, uh, learning how to deal with success and failure. We want our kids to have dreams. We want them to follow their dreams and we want to be able to use that as a carrot. You know, the the worst is if your kids don't really care about anything. And the best is when you can say, look, if you don't get bees, you can't play soccer, which is what my parents said to me. Um, And um, and so, you know, we want to support our kids passions. And these lessons are definitely learned in all sports. 100%.
0: Yeah, no, I think that everything that you just said deserves to be reiterated and restated multiple times. I mean, you know, I think one of the biggest disservices that lacrosse has done for itself over the last two decades is created a transactional relationship between participation and outcome. And especially because the outcome has so frequently been packaged as a college roster spot or admissions to a college that you wouldn't otherwise get into or you know certainly in in fewer numbers uh, scholarship and i think as a result of that transactional nature too few people focus on the fact that we play for the same reason that we play everything right because you enjoy it and because you get a lot of developmental experience out of it you know and i think about it in the context of my own experience which i think is the place or the starting point for which we all come to these types of conversations and You know, I started playing sports in second grade, playing baseball, didn't really like it. I played soccer earlier than that. I have no memory of it. I really, I I tried wrestling, didn't like that either, started playing basketball and flag football in third grade, liked both those more, really sank my teeth into tackle football when I started playing in fifth grade. And that was kind of all I focused on through eighth grade because there wasn't an opportunity to play lacrosse. My older brother got me into lacrosse because he was eight years older than me, and I was the ball boy on his team. And so as a result, when I was a freshman in high school, the first opportunity that I had to join a lacrosse team, I had an advantage relative to pretty much everybody else on the team, probably 80% of the players on the team, because I knew how to throw and catch. And so through high school, I was a two-sport athlete. I played football and lacrosse. I never had designs on playing sports in college, Um, and I don't know... Uh, to what degree that was a reflection of of the time, right? I you know graduated from high school in two thousand three. I don't know to what degree it was a reflection of my family. I hadn't I wasn't related to anybody that had played sports in college, um, and I also think that by virtue of that, you know, pretty much everybody in my family had gone to college on an academic path and trajectory. So you know, it wasn't I was I was never going to engage in in a transactional relationship. I played those two sports for incredibly different reasons. The one thing they had in common is that I enjoyed both of them. But I actually didn't really enjoy football. I don't think anybody really enjoys football. Like, football practices are miserable. Football games are glorious. I think pretty much everybody enjoys soccer, basketball, hockey, lacrosse, because that's the nature of the game. That's kind of like they're free-flowing, they're fun, they're enjoyable, whatever. Um, I play football for an opportunity to play for my high school football program because It was, you know, it was a a powerhouse and it was a cool opportunity to be a part of that team. I played lacrosse because I really enjoyed it and because I have this, like, innate, like, I don't know, love for the kind of mystical fluidity of of the way that the game's played, the tactics, all that stuff that you and I talk about all the time. I think that's one of the things that we share in common. But what I'm getting at is that, like, I have a hard time natively relating to the idea of you play a sport to get an opportunity or you play a sport for a particular outcome. Yeah. But, I, but I still know and I still understand that, that is the reason that a lot of people do participate in these types of things.
1: Well, and also because a lot of times kids, you know, um, at the lowest levels due to birthdays and relative age effect, um, you know, if you're a uh, January 1st birthday, you know, and y- you're going to be more athletic, you know, at six or seven years old than the kid with a November birthday. Right. So, um, in the, you know, yeah,
0: I mean like, but I would actually almost reject that notion to the point where it's like the only degree to which that actually matters is like for elevating up the funnel, like whether you're good or bad to me, what I was
1: going to say though, is people get a false positive when their kids dominate and score five or six goals a game in soccer when they're 5 or 6 years old it's different it's not even close to the same as when you're 10 or 15 or 20 and so then all of a sudden people start thinking about wow i might really have something here my kid might be really special and then people are going to kind of tell you they're special and and then the kid kind of maybe has a favorite sport maybe maybe doesn't um but at the end of the day then people start thinking about how can we you know maybe maybe my kid is going to be able to go get a scholarship and 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 so then a lot of people sort of start thinking about the other sports more as a means to get better at their regular sport, which their primary sport, sport. it's not necessarily proven that this can happen, but I think we all, we all like to believe it, that there's a transfer. I sent you an article earlier today that um, that we should discuss on another time. But the idea here though, is that I think at early ages, we get a fool's gold feeling of where our kids are. And if we would just, allow them to play and sample a lot of different sports and not really get so serious about it that we're worried about wins and losses and who the coach is and and, and, and going full into this youth sports machine, um, I think we would be able to have better results. Uh, it's kind of funny though, the East Germans used to put the, their, their, the kids who seem to have athletic aptitude in gymnastics, track and field and swimming, so they could learn how to run, Sprint, throw, jump, and get the the strength and coordination of gymnastics, and then and then they would sort of funnel them off into the into their various sports. And I think a lot of us- much
0: of that also. How much of that also was about learning how to compete? Because um, one of the things about racing, and I feel really strongly, like you know, I think every sport has its own merits, but one of the things that I think tennis measures your mental toughness as an individual more firmly more stronger than any other sport like because there's no clock and there's no teammates and so ultimately like you're just going to get beaten down by your opponent unless you have the mental fortitude to continue to compete once you fall behind um so but i think racing has a lot of that as well um from the standpoint of like don't give up until the race is over and, you know, obviously gymnastics doesn't inherently incorporate that, but, um, you are relying on yourself in gymnastics in the same way that you are in swimming and track.
1: Yeah. And there's no doubt. I think that there's value there and there's value in, in learning how to do it with teammates because you're still trying to win. You know, I mean, Michael Jordan wasn't an individual sport athlete, but he was as competitive as they come and he had to learn how to yeah. do it with teammates. And I, I, I think competitive people end up being competitive people regardless, oftentimes. Um, but, but I guess what I am saying is that I I do think that, that there are good reasons for playing other sports because of all of these great virtues, but there's also a great reason to do them because it, it it just creates, you know, a sport is an environment. And so therefore, if you play soccer, you have to learn how to know what you're going to do with the ball before you get it. Unlike in lacrosse, you really don't. You can be really good as a youth lacrosse player and never have any idea where the space is, where the open people are, because you can wait to get it. Whereas in soccer, if you can't do that, you'll never control the ball. You'll never complete a pass. And every sport has their sort of strengths and weaknesses this way. And so obviously, you know, with hockey, you've got sort of that same idea with soccer, but you've got the sort of this, the stick skills sort of that's similar to lacrosse and with basketball, race, of course, you've got all of the concepts, and all of these sports are amazing environments for kids to learn. And I think that's really what it's all about is, you know, at, at box lacrosse is a different environment than fields and has really, in my opinion, proven to be a better developer um, of players than field uh, just because of the goal size, really. Um, yeah. Other reasons
0: too, but and the boards.
1: Boards, I think the goal size is the big one because it's the end of the day. If you put a if you put a big net in in, in a box, um, you can take bad shots. You don't have to get to the middle. You don't have to make that many passes. And in box across, you know you have to get to the middle, and that's ultimately the the name of the game for for the higher levels of field lacrosse too. Getting to the middle, getting shots from the middle, learning how to um work together to get to the middle understanding that it's easier to get to the middle you know without the ball than it is with the ball there's just a lot of reasons i don't disagree with the boards it keeps it in play it gives you more reps the shot clock is pretty huge too honestly if there was no shot clock in box you'd have a lot more control of coaches whereas in you know you can't you know you can try to run a little look in the you know in the 20 seconds you have you know down on offense but you've, eventually you eventually the kids are, it's on it's on them to try to make a play and, and figure it out um but but sports are environments um, and it's a, there's no doubt in my mind that they make a a, a big difference. So um, let's, let's transition to a, a, a goal that I would have if I was a parent. Now, I, I, I am a parent and my kids are all in college or going into college. And I've been in the business. I've worked with a ton of athletes and I kind of look at all of this. And honestly, what I really wish was that there was a way to have Mike, and they're all gonna play college lacrosse too, but I, I, would love to, I would have loved it if they were all had enough skill to play multiple sports in high school. And I think that that is something that is kind of doable and fun. And I think that there's something really valuable about that. Maybe you shouldn't have goals for your kids like that, but but, but giving them the opportunity to be good enough at a couple of different sports where they could actually play high school sports, it, which is not easy, easier said than done for sure. It's really hard to do.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually something that we should dive in on a little bit, because I think that that's where when I bring up the notion of romanticism and not understanding the current climate. I think that a lot of folks take for granted that kids would have opportunities to play multiple sports that they, in fact, do not because of the nature of high school sports in most schools these days. And you're the one that really turned my attention to that. So you mind just going a little bit deeper on exactly how good of an athlete you think you have to be in order to be able to play multiple sports at a lot of these high schools where kids are playing lacrosse? Totally.
1: And it's a little bit in the nature of how competitive, but also in the nature of the sports themselves. And it's kind of like also in the nature of what you decide to prioritize. So if you wanna play soccer and lacrosse, it's almost impossible because the club soccer will make you play a spring season and a fall season and you'll, you, you know, you'll, you'll fall behind in their, in, in their model um, of really playing a lot of soccer and, and, and the futsal and it's nonstop. If you play hockey and lacrosse, you really have to put your eggs in the basket of hockey, but then there's a good enough translation they'll give you the spring. There's a lot of kids that are very good hockey players, that can play lacrosse in the spring and actually eventually be good enough to play lacrosse at, at pretty high levels. Um, there's a lot of college hockey players. I think they're, the, skill, the teams are, I mean, the, the sports are, are pretty similar. I think anybody can pretty much play football because it doesn't, the, the rosters are
0: huge and the pretty much no cut everywhere.
1: Yeah. And, and, and they'll take ma- massive rosters and, and you don't really need like a, a, a pure skill set unless you're a quarterback, you know, you can just be an athlete and they can. And there's you.
0: very little out of season play.
1: Right. It's basically out of season. lifting. I think basketball is a tough one because obviously, you know, it requires a certain amount of size. Oftentimes it requires an immense amount of skill and it's hard to be um, a basketball player and, into anything else. Um, although I think if you decided you want to be a basketball player and play lacrosse, you probably could, but I don't think you're going to be a lacrosse player and then decide to be a soccer player or decide to be a hockey player or decide to be a basketball player. It probably won't work out with with a well, lot of important- rosters
0: are also 12 to 15 guys. And there's typically two, three, or sometimes four teams at a school. So, you know, depending, I mean, you know, my high school has about 1500 boys in it. And about 60 play basketball, right? Just from an odds standpoint, you're looking at like roughly one in 30 opportunity to play basketball over four years. Like it's just really, I mean, to your point about like the inherent skill, but it also, you know, then size, but also just the numbers game. Like you can be the 16th best basketball player in your junior class and you're not going to make the team. Yeah, exactly.
1: And it's kind of interesting too, because I think that like, Nobody, when we talk about multi-sport athletes, this is a really interesting one. It's like, Hey, you know, you're, you're recruiting somebody. So what are sports to play? And the kid's like, Oh, I play soccer, play basketball. You're like, Oh, that's great. You know, three sport athlete. You're like, well, what, what team do you play on? Oh, well, I just play a lot of pickup hoops. Um, I play, I play pickup soccer all the time. You probably wouldn't give credence in, 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 in real t- to that. Although Funny thing, it, it provides a lot of value. It does. And in fact, I think it provides more value. And I think that that's one of the things that I've been really learning over the last couple of years. And we'll, we'll we'll chat about this. But the idea, though, is that playing these other sports with your friends will probably get you more bang for your buck than when you show up at practice. If you ever watch film of a practice as a coach, you'd be like, man, I feel like we did a really, we had did a great job here. We provided a ton of reps. We were, you know, high tempo, one thing to another. And then you and then you, and you go through with an athlete, you realize they didn't really get very many chances to do much. <laughs> they didn't shoot very often. They didn't, they didn't dodge very often. They had a couple ground balls because it was the nature of teams and developing teams. So the structured sports is really, is really tough. And I, I would love to transition into that. Well, hold on. Go
0: ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, this might be where you're going, but if it's not, I do want to jump in here on a point that I care about, I guess or think is true. So the, I think that as, I think when you're young, the value proposition of playing multiple sports is about physical development. And I think as you age, the pendulum shifts toward the value being about social development. What do you think of that? And specifically around the idea of social development in terms of when you're young and not as competitive, your teammates aren't going to hold you accountable, as accountable, and you're not going to hold your teammates as accountable. But if you're a sophomore in high school playing JV basketball or JV soccer, like, it, you're, you want to win those games. And so when you make a mistake, your teammates are going to hold you accountable for them, and you're going to have to learn how to handle that confrontation. So that's where I see more value from a multi-sport athlete development as you get older. What do you think of that idea?
1: Well I definitely agree that the physical literacy when you're young is is important which is why playing a lot of these different sports and frankly this is why I would believe that you'd be better off playing them in the backyard with a lot of friends because you would you would literally get 10 times more chances to do things whatever they may yep. be it could be monkey bars you know or it could be a soccer game or a basketball game or whatever um uh, but but as far as the social piece I totally agree with you there too because it kind of goes back to you know, the leadership, the teamwork, they're playing a role, the goal setting, the sacrifice, all that stuff. That That's that's like the the benefit when you start getting older of, of being on a team. What does it mean to be a great teammate? All these things that are, you know, going to be important in life, important in business, important in family, important in everything that you do. As far as holding people accountable, honestly, I think there's the coaches that are holding people accountable a lot more than players. Um, I don't think you see a whole lot of player. Uh, cultures where where the players are holding people accountable. I mean, Andy Shea, Yale has created that and, and, and they're winning a lot. And there's other teams that I think do that too, but oftentimes it's the coach. And as the coach is holding everybody accountable, you know, they'll do that when you're young too. And they'll do it right through that JV basketball or into varsity or into whatever else. And learning how to hold teammates accountable is probably one of those virtues that you, that you'd like to learn. Right. So I, I do think it exists for sure. Uh, but the social piece, totally agree with. Um, I want to go back to this concept that I discussed with Stuart Armstrong from The Talent Equation on a podcast. For people out there, if you're not listening to his content or checking out his content, you should. It's really, really interesting stuff. But but basically, what I see happening, and I, I listen, I've been a part of it, okay? I've been a part. I grew up as a in the in the as an athlete in the late 70s and 80s where there was not a lot of structure we didn't have club lacrosse there was club soccer but i didn't play it i played every sport i was pretty good at a lot of different sports i soccer was my main sport and then lacrosse became my favorite sport when i was like a junior in high school and i got recruited actually to play both and picked lacrosse and, and then went on this trajectory of of coaching where i was a part of this evolution of of coaching as well as the professionalization of youth sports and all of us are trying to figure out the best ways to coach. I mean, you know, you can look at the professionalization of youth sports and, 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 and shake, shake your head. But honestly, most of the people that are involved are actually trying to do a good job, really trying to teach people, trying to give good experiences, um, you know, well-intentioned whether or not it was like actually working the way it can. But essentially well, what And I- also,
0: hold on, sorry, real quick, again, I'm going to do my normal thing and jump in with some sort of like broad sweeping cultural statement. But the professionalization of youth sports has coincided directly with mom and dad being less likely to feel comfortable about letting, you know, little Johnny play outside alone Mm -hmm. and also the disinvestment in most communities in their parks and recs department. So the professionalization of youth sports is not about the professionalization of youth sports. It's about a shift from the public sector to the private sector. And it's not, (laughs) it's not unique to youth sports. It's happening in many different areas of our culture, like the prison system, you know what I mean? I am like trying to make this more political than it needs to be, but like it's just another function of for the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s, so much of youth sports participation was subsidized by the government, right? Like think about it in the context of, people think football is free. Football is absolutely not free. Football is free to the consumer, but football is subsidized in large part by municipal and county governments all across the country to the tune of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over the course of the last 60 years. So that's a big reason why there isn't a ton of out of season play, right? Because the commercialized opportunity is a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird cost, right? Like, I don't play, I don't pay much at all. Or, I mean, obviously this number has changed over the course of the last 20 years since I played, but when I was in middle school and high school, I played like, I paid like $15 a year to play football and I was wearing 350, $500 worth of equipment. And I was, you know, playing on, playing on public land, being coached by guys who were being paid. Right. So like, where was the money coming from? Well, well,
1: sorry, I think I agree with what you're saying, but I think it was different for different sports. Um, and there was a lot, as you said, in school. So your high school was going to be like your, your main goal. And it's going to it was going to be your chief structured sport, whatever it was. And then as you were younger, you might have middle school sports. You might not. Um, I did. Um, but, but I just started playing lacrosse, mini lacrosse with H. Wayne Curtis back when I was in fifth grade. Somebody said, Hey, check out the stick. And I decided to play. And it was a, it was a house league. Rec program that was in Providence, Rhode Island, and, and I played mini lacrosse in soccer. I did the same thing. There was a house league that I played in the fall. 90 um, percent of the sports I played was not during those two things because they were like two nights a week with one game on Saturday. That was about it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and um, and so but my, my point is, is I don't disagree that it, it's it's part partly a shift of, of from public to private. But but there's no question that the combination of the evolution of coaching and this professionalization of these sports meaning we're going to make it better we're going to start specializing more you're going to fall behind we want you because the business itself needs needs to fuel itself and i've been a part of it i know what it's like You, you 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 basically want to provide more programming and then you need more people working for you and then you need more programming and next thing you know you just need people in there um and it may not always be to the benefit of of the athlete um but sort of my my point on all this stuff, though, is, is that I think there has been a shift from the 70s, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s into the 90s. Um, you know, even in the sport of lacrosse, it was mostly camps in the 90s. And then all of a sudden the clubs started to happen in the early 2000s. And now camps, you know, are exist, but but they don't exist the way that they used to exist. They exist. Sure. In, in more of a showcase format with the occasional teaching camp and they're usually 50 kids. Whereas you, you might, you might, have, you know, back in the nineties, we, we would have thousands of campers. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, and so, but the the problem with this isn't that it's bad to, to play organized sports. The problem is, is that it is not efficient as it is to play with friends and play in the backyard. It just isn't, there's no way if you have 20 kids and one goal and a coach, and you're going to pretty much go to practice. And then that's going to be where you get your live play. You know, you're not going to get, if you if anybody who goes out and counts those reps, you're not going to get that many touches. And I usually qualify touches because if you're, if we're talking about touches outside of the context of teammates and defenders, you know, to me, those, those, those touches are worth a lot less than the touches that you would have if you were live with anybody. And when you play pickup hoops, I want you to, I would always say this to anybody who was a hoop player. I'd be like, imagine if you were the only one, you know, everybody else that you play basketball with went to practice and got lessons shot, but you played pickup all the time. Who's going to be the better basketball player. Right. I mean, it's, just, it's obvious. And it's the same thing with these soccer academies across the world, I've done a lot of for those people that are interested check out Ted Creighton and enjoy the people. Yeah. But these soccer academies um, are, are phenomenal in Europe. And they, you know, these kids come in at age six, but oftentimes the, the, the tra- the way they value or measure the value of players is transfer fees. When they leave, when they sell their players to clubs. And so often the transfers, the best transfers, were guys that didn't get to the academy until they were like 13 or 14. They were street players. Yep. You know, all these kids that were six, they weren't, they weren't necessarily getting there. And so the reason is, and this is also why in the sport of lacrosse, it's a really big advantage if your dad actually knows what he's doing. Correct. No question. If your dad played the game, he's going to be able to teach you stuff that's going to accelerate your learning curve big time. Now, he may not well, be, in my opinion, the smartest things, but no matter what, it's going to, it's going to be, be a huge advantage for that kid because that's where you really learn how to play is by playing in these unstructured times in the backyard with, with your dad, with your brothers and sisters.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was the point that I was going to make is that like, you know, to the extent that a problem with free play is, you know, proximity to your friend's and your mom being comfortable saying like, yeah, you can ride your bike a mile and a half to the park to play with your other three friends who are going to make the commitment. One of whom is going to carry the goal on his back on his bike in order to get there. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's harder. It's going to happen less frequently. Whereas if, you know, you and your dad, if you if your dad thought it was worthwhile to spend a couple hundred dollars on a goal and then you and he are going to play on it every night for 45 minutes, and then post videos of yourself playing against each other on Twitter and then have post game press conferences, like a certain PLL coach, like, yeah, your kid's rated development is gonna be incredible.
1: <laughs> Total. Um, but it's, it, to me, it, it, when, you, when you sort of look at structure versus non-structure, it's not like you don't want structure. It's awesome to be on teams. It's fun to be on a team. All those things we talked about, about leadership and teamwork and playing a role, you learn that on teams. It's just what I'm saying is it's not the most efficient way to become really good at the sport. It's a part of it for sure. And what ends up happening is mom and dad are trying to do the best they can do and they find out like, oh, I, there's this person doing this lesson over here. And, and these the, the, the amount of overscheduled athletes with so many... So many lessons, and, 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 and you know, you've got there's there is no time. You know, part of it is you may not really have the neighborhood of, of, of free play in the neighborhood like you, you might have back in the day. Part of it is no question, you may not feel comfortable. Or that some kids
0: have in certain communities in certain parts of the country, right? Yeah. Like, that's another thing is that it's not that it doesn't exist, it's just that it exists less frequently than it did 40 years ago.
1: But it's also valued differently, Correct. and it's because of the professionalization of these sports. It's because of the goals everyone is sort of setting for themselves. Because now it's kind of like, you know, get your reps in. You know, you could be talking to a middle school or a young kid, be like, hey, did you get, did you get your Wawa reps in today? Um, whereas when we were growing up, it was more about just play. Go play. And now there are a lot of people that have a very hard time understanding that in this ecological development model where, where you can learn while playing, and that every skill you have is actually a solution to the problem you're facing with your opponent. And it's not just necessarily a technique that's fundamental and that needs to be repped. It's like literally skills are solutions. And it's, it's super interesting. So the reason why I'm bringing all this up to sort of bring it full circle, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll turn the page onto some other elements of this, but if I could do it all over again, and I just wanted to share this with, with parents out there that are younger parents, if I could do it all over again, I would definitely sign my kids up and plug them in certain ways into the youth sports machine. But I would I would try to build a little culture and community of 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 kids, parents and their kids. And I'd probably be like when they're six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. I'd be like, hey, you guys want to play in a 300 basketball event? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Sign up for it. And then. And then go, well, let's play in my house. we will play three on three at my house for, for a while. And then you do that. And, and then, then you do it for like a soccer, three on three soccer event. And then you're like, hey, just play in the backyard. Because I think back to the, the, the doable goal of could you be good enough to play multiple sports in high school? I believe that if you did it with a free play model, you would be. I was. Now, I know that you may say, well, you also, you're, you're part of the problem. All the guys that think back, you know, look back but I was, I was skilled enough to play soccer. You know, I would be skilled enough to play soccer in high school now. And I didn't have a lot of lessons. It was a free play model. Lacrosse was March, April, May, and I know it was a whole, far less competitive then than now, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that the magic is in, is in the free play. If you understand that you can plug into the youth sports machine and get, find a good team and good coaching and don't have to worry about falling behind because you'll you'll get so much more bang for your buck.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's where a huge part of the conversation comes back to social pressure, right? And I think the social pressure is a combination of what you're being told by your coach and also what you're being told by your child's teammates, parents. And I think that's where, again, the lack of consensus on the value comes in. I also think that we shouldn't sell short the notion that a lot of times, like, you know, people want to do these things that to some extent they think are quote unquote bad for them. Right. So, you know, one of the aspects of like early specialization is like, no, I mean, my son wants to play in all these games. Like my daughter and I want to take these trips where, you know, we're staying in the hotel a couple times a month in the fall, you know, like, and so I I think that that's a really weird thing to try to weigh because whenever, I had talked to a parent about what they should be focused on trying to get out of, you know, this experience, going through the recruiting pipeline, whatever you want to describe it as. I always say, like, it has to start from the want. Like, you have to imagine a scenario in which nothing happens as a result of this. And in that scenario, will you view all this time as being wasted? And if the answer is yes, then you probably shouldn't participate or you should ratchet way back the level of participation. But if you are going to enjoy it inherently, then you know. Yeah, why not do it? Make your right? decision. Yeah, exactly. But it's I guess what I'm this, saying is that the like, one thing I'd add on say, that. Though. The one thing I would add to you. that, though. Sorry, go ahead. Let me just finish by saying, imagine that you believe that free play is the ticket to improvement, but in order to facilitate free play to the volume that you think is necessary you have to sacrifice going to a few of these games or going on a few of these trips and you really want to do them, right? Like you really want to, you really want to, you know, you really want to go on the trips. You really want to play in these games. It's a conflict that I think, I don't know. It's just like, I feel like that's not a part of this conversation that gets brought up very often.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's fair, but I think you can have a balance. And that's kind of the beauty of free play is that it's super efficient. I literally would do it with my daughter, through high school, you know, once a week for an hour, in the off season, and and all the kids got so much better. You watch the watch the films; it's it's unreal. Um, and I don't think do, you know you want to be able to do what you want to do. If you love traveling with your kid and you love to play, do it. But but a lot of people I think are doing this not just because they like it. I think I think they do like it, and everyone likes it to a certain degree. But yeah, I think they think it's not everyone fits. likes it. Well, not everyone likes it, but people like spending time with their kids. Yes. And traveling with your kids is fun. Um, you know, usually tournaments are always like a big letdown. Everyone gets all fired up, and then it was like, you know, you didn't wear any face-offs, the weather was terrible, you know, you lost every game, you you, you killed everybody, you know, whatever it was. Right. There's a million reasons why. No, but- the
0: best parts of the, the best parts of these trips is hanging out in the hotel lobby on yeah. Saturday night like that is the part that people like the most. It is
1: and it's what the kids love too. They love running around and then the parents love hanging out and having a couple of beers and talking about it. But but I but what I was going to say though is I think part of the reason why everyone's doing it is I think it's the best mo- it's the best direction. It's the, like the what I would have thought you know before taking this deep dive into free play I would have thought the best the best model would be the best competition combined with the best coaching. You know, and probably these 10,000 hours of of, of deliberate practice is going to be the best is going to give you the best results. And there's definitely a place for all that. It's just that what I've kind of found is that the the free play, the mixed levels allows players, you know, you were talking about holding people accountable. I want to talk a little bit about the inner game of tennis where the ability to be in the moment is one of the most important elements of being a good competitor that there is which is why you were sort of talking about tennis. You brought that up, or it's a great way to kind of learn how to do that. It's really hard to do it.
0: It's, impossible.
1: it's almost impossible to do it in a structured practice because what you're trying to do the whole time is do what your coaches are telling you to do and not do and, and, and please them. You know, you ever see a kid look over and like, you did it, you know, yeah, you see, I did it. Or, or you know, they're clueless and they're not doing it. And the coach is getting all over them, even at early ages. Um, when you're just playing, You actually get in the zone. It's like when little kids are playing and you're like, you're like, Terry, your mom's like, Terry, and you're not really hearing her because you're so engrossed in what you're doing that you can't hear anything. And that's, that's what being in the moment is. And that's, it's one of the really amazing sort of, sort of benefits. But, but, but in the end, I I just really wanted to share with, with people that it's, it's not that you don't want great coaching and great competition, but there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I'm not going to go. I mean, I, I can't go to this. This team isn't good enough for me. I want right. to ask you a really interesting question. All right. If you're playing basketball, you play hoops, Terry, you play hoop, pick up hoops. <laughs> yeah. So if you're playing pick up hoops with your buddies that were non hoop players, you could go out there and, and be, you know, Michael Jordan or Steph Curry or your version of it. Yeah. But if you were playing with all the guys on the basketball team, what was your role?
0: Yeah. You get smoked. You just move the ball.
1: Move the ball, rebound. Hopefully, get a fast break bucket. Play some defense. Don't screw it up. Exactly. Don't shoot. But that is, that is, you know, an incredibly important sort of concept to sort of be to be thought through. Um, so right, Patrick
0: just... McEwen obviously has done a lot of uh, this similar type of research from physiological and social development that that you've done. And one of the things that he says all the time is, you've got to be the best player on the team, and you've got to be the worst player on the team. You have to experience both of those things when you're going through your athletic development. In order to understand what it is to be relied upon and in order to understand what it is to be the teammate who has to rely on everybody else. And you know, I I think that's an incredible, you know, succinct way to make the point that you're trying to make.
1: Totally. And I think that playing these multiple sports in playing pickup hoops, be be about as good as you can do. If you could just get your kid, even if he's not a basketball player playing pickup hoops, playing three on three once a week there's probably nothing better you could do for them as, as an athlete in general. All right, let's right. switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the downside of being a multi-sport athlete, the downside physically, the downside time-wise, the downside in college across recruiting.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that we've already addressed one of the biggest downsides with it, which is the opportunity, you know, and I think that we were doing a little bit of research, um, in terms of the insider cross recruiting database to try to determine how many players didn't have an affiliation with a club that had committed to play division one. And of the 450 that had committed in the 23 class, there were about 20 that didn't have an affiliation with a club, which is obviously an incredibly small percentage. We're talking about, you know, less than 10% of the group overall. So, you know, the simple fact is that, and this is really interesting in the context of a year in which, recruiters exclusively recruited by video. The 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 proposition or the point is that they they just trust their own in-person eye more than any other aspect of the recruiting mechanism, whether it be word of mouth or whatever, whether it be recruiting by a video. And so as a result, there is a direct correlation between having to be seen and getting an opportunity to play at the next level. And so there is no more efficient way than you know, either the club system or, and I think this is the only way to otherwise navigate it, to select the prospect days of the programs that you're interested in and hope that you're good enough to play there. Um, but in that instance, the big risk is you're not getting that type of advocacy and feedback on how good you actually are in order to make sure that you're targeting the right opportunities, the right levels. So it might be that you went to five prospect days and you know you weren't good enough to play at any of those programs and so then, you know, do you have the safety net that you otherwise do if you're playing a part of your out-of-season, right? I guess my point is that I don't think, you know, it, 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 the what we're talking about is, you know, the 40% to 60% of the group who are take-it-or-leave-it players. They get opportunities because they're good enough and because they bring something else to the table. And if you're – because if you're in the group, if you're in the elite group, right, which represents somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 40% of the group overall, you're going to get discovered regardless, right? You could only play high school lacrosse and you're going to get discovered by your film and word about mouth. But if you're not that good athletically or as a player, and oftentimes production is not valued when it comes to the process, if you're not that good, then you do need to generate opportunities elsewise and Right now, the best, most efficient way to do it is playing club lacrosse, which means that you have to participate in out-of-season competition, and that, in many instances, comes at the expense of your ability to play another sport. So, you know, I I would say that that's a big function. Now, one of the things that's really, you know, compelling about that is volume, right? Right volume relative to the amount of lacrosse you play and volume relative to the amount of lacrosse you play plus the amount of the other sport you play. Basically, the demands that you're putting on your body and the way in which you perform as a result. Are you putting your best foot out there? If you are in that you know, group of take it or leave him players, then when you perform, are you actually destroying your chances as opposed to creating your chances because you're putting too much bad film or bad evaluative material out there? For me, that's a question that I don't know the answer to right now, because I still feel like it's kind of evolving. Um, because one of the themes that came away from this summer was overexposure. You know, I, you can speak to this better than I can because you've actually done it for a decade or more, but more than a decade. Essentially, the way that the recruitment process works is, you learn a player's name, either by being told who he is or catching him in a moment and writing his name down. And then you try to increase your sample size of his content through whatever mean. If you're at an event and you notice to play in the first game, you might go watch a second game and focus exclusively on him. If you get told his name or however, you know, ever else you came across, you would look up his highlight. video. And then coming away from that second interaction, you then make the decision, are you gonna continue or are you not? And once you continue, then you broaden the amount of content that you're consuming, right? So it's multiple games. If you're evaluating live, it's watching multiple full games on video so that you can really get a sense of the player's overall picture. And then if you feel good after that, that's when you start to make the decision on whether or not you're going to talk to somebody. And once you talk to them, then you round out the financial, social, and academic component of the conversation and decide whether or not it's a player that you're going to move forward with what i'm getting at is that in that immediate moment right particularly when it's at an event when it's live if you do something that comes at the detriment or even in that second layer right if you if you're putting something out there that is a representation of you not being as good as you would normally be because you're playing too much does that destroy your chances and like i said I, I don't i don't know i don't know that no the doubt. jury is is back that no doubt
1: you do not want to play tired. You do not want to play injured. So over the summer, there was an incredible amount of overscheduling. There were so many events that popped up in the virtual world of the COVID summer of 2020. And everybody signed up for those and the, and their club teams. And there, there were kids that literally played, you know, back to back to back to back events. There's just no way you can go that hard and be 100%. And it, it definitely hurt some kids. But I want to go back to your point, um, about this big group of kids there's a huge group of good players that are probably good enough to play division one. There's the, there's the, there's the freaks that you can see five fields away. And they're probably the ones that make it look really easy as a multi-sport athletes do. And they can play football because they're so good. Everyone knows who they are already and they can just do whatever they want. And If if you're one of those kids, then it's great. And then there's a lot of kids that are, that are good. Because it's not, you know, they're good enough, even. Or really yes. good, excellent. But maybe they're, you know, they're from Colorado or they're from California. They're, they're from Ohio. They're not, they're not from the beltway between D.C. and Boston, where it's so easy to be able to get more exposure at an early age of all kinds of stuff. It's so much harder for kids in the West, honestly, because just everything from the time change. I mean, you know, you got to fly back and play a fall ball game, 8 a.m. fall ball game from California. That's 5 a.m. start, right? And, and, and if you played a football game on Friday night, you took the red eye.
0: right?
1: It makes it, makes it really, really difficult. Um, but I think the downside of multi-sports is that oftentimes it puts you in this really difficult position of should I play my sport, which I love with all my teammates, or should I try to play Division I lacrosse, of which there's no guarantees but like you said, the club is the best way because prospect days can can work, but there's very little team play. And if you're a player that actually team play is part of your strength, and you're on a club team that has good team play, it's going to be a big advantage for you to play on that team. That the freaks can do whatever they want. You can see them, they they can they can they can go to a showcase and be the best player and do it. It doesn't really even matter. But, you know, it's like, it's kind of like the Jay Carlson's of the world. You know, like it would, probably be helpful for him if he was playing on a club team so that somebody could pass him the ball because he's like right. he's a freak in his own right. He's just not like a sort of dominate. And I I do think that playing all these extra sports is tough because there's no time to rest. There's no time to rest. If you're playing three sports and summer, it's like you literally have no downtime for your body. And then you got all the other stuff going on with with your main sport out of season the lacrosse that you that you have to play and it, it beats you down. And of course, you can't work on performance. So if you really want to be the best you can be, you would get faster. You can't get faster um, and not rest. You can't get faster. If you've got soccer practice and football practice every single day, games on Saturdays and lacrosse on Sunday, you, you might be able to carve out the time to try to get faster, but you're not going to get faster if you're not rested enough to go your fastest. It's just a fact. You, it's, it rest is, is incredibly important, which is, you know, which is basically valuing and prioritizing performance, which is kind of what we're talking about in the summer with all these events and, and all this stuff. So it's it's really, really hard. I, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. I'm a big believer in multi-sport athletes. But my question to you would be, when would you decide to specialize and w- when is it kind of OK to specialize, you know, what does early specialization even mean? And then in the context of, of this, where you're a junior in high school and it's the fall and it's like, this is kind of your last shot. You kind of need to play.
0: So let me ask you before we get to that point, sorry. Is there a benchmark for the amount of rest that is necessary or even adequate? And is it shareable? Do you know what it is?
1: So I've done a few podcasts with high performance leaders, Eric Corum, um, Tony Holler from Feed the Cats, um, and um, it's made, It's had a massive impact on me as as a. I kind of consider myself a performance coach with all the athletes I work with, but also with the coach team that I was coaching. Um, and uh, and in the end, I think if you had conversations with them, that y- you'd find out that you must feel fresh. If you're sore, if you're tired, then you then you do not want. You will not be able to. harder and and every you're not going to be able to improve something such as speed Christian McCaffrey was was uh is a guy that is from this town Highlands Ranch Colorado and he works with this guy named Brian Kula who's a good friend of Tony Haller we talked about this story on our podcast in which it was like so hard for Christian McCaffrey to like give himself enough rest because he's such a worker all he wants to do is work and Part of the problem isn't just that everyone's overscheduled with all these other sports, but they're also just like, they're workers, you know, and they like to work and they like to lift and they like to do all these things and hit the wall and all these things. And so part of it is, it's funny, okay? So Mike Boyle, world-class strength and conditioning coach, follow him on Twitter, anybody, he's a brilliant guy, he's probably about 61, 62 years old and he's cutting edge. And he's like, "If if I was to recommend one thing, I would recommend timed sprints, He's a weight room guy, but he's saying, if you're going to do one thing, sprint and time it. And I asked Tony Haller, I told him that Tony Holler, feed the cats track coach really has had a massive impact. Um, even in the lacrosse world, you'll see it. You'll hear about him. He's like, well, if I had one, if I told my athletes one thing, I'd say sleep. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's so interesting. So there, there is a lot to do this. And I think it all kind of fits nicely though with, with free play, because you can basically kind of just go play free play and you're not going to beat yourself down. You just play. Yeah. The game slows down. The game actually slows down. Have you ever, ever gone out and played hoops for like two and a half hours with your buddies when you're like 12? The game kind of gets silly, but you're actually still learning unbelievable things. So, But back to this whole, the the, the, the downside of, of multi-sports is, man, it puts you in tough positions. We all want to play. We're in this position where we feel like we're letting people down if we don't play but then we've got our own goals and we don't want to let ourselves down in in the goals that we might have as athletes or or that our kids might have, you know, there's going to be very little time for rest and improvement and performance improvement. You're just not going to be able to do it. Can't do it.
0: Do the guys that you talk to have have in, uh, you know, this may never come up, but do they advocate for the um, wearable technologies that track um, recovery, you know, whether it be Fitbit, Whoop or Apple watch?
1: Yes. So Eric Corum is in process of creating um, a uh, a program that he's that will work with Apple Watch. Um, I don't think he's going to be using Whoop. I think that, I think the uh, what's the Ring that you can wear too. I think that that is
0: it, yeah, I, is it just called Ring? No, no it's, it's the doorbell.
1: <laughs> yeah, I forget what it is. But um, my dad has one. But he is he's going to be using the, the data is important if you know what it means, and if it's accurate. Some of these, some of these, um, some of these, some of this data is not accurate. And so therefore then it's kind of worthless, but if the data is accurate and then you know how to read it and you kind of know how much you're, how much sleep you're getting or how, how good you feel, it does matter. But, but I think, you know, in the end, being fresh.
0: Key. You'll appreciate this anecdote. Um, any lacrosse coach listening to this, I defy you to be the first one. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about lacrosse is how committed we are to the fashion and how averse we are to doing anything that makes you look like you're not a part of the conventional wisdom. I was standing at the 2019 Homewood PLL Day on the fence with Demora Smith, the executive director of the NFL Players Association. His son, Alex, is a short-street committee from Maryland. And Demoris obviously is incredibly tied in to football at every level. And one of the things that he said in that conversation that really has stuck with me ever since, obviously I'm able to recall very specifically when and where we were was, I can't believe these guys don't sit on the bench. We were standing right behind the, one of the, you know, the snakes bench probably. And he was just like, I can't believe these guys don't sit on the bench. Like just, and, and he's like, I tell Alex all the time, like you gotta, when you come off the field, Sit. sit down, your legs will recover faster and you'll be better your next shift on the field. And he's like, football players sit, hockey players sit, basketball players sit. Like, why is it that in, there's this fashion in lacrosse that you stand when you're on the sideline? He's like, go and recover and then be better when you go back on the field. So any college coach or any coach at any level listening to this, I defy you to be the first one to make your players sit when they come off the field.
1: I guess if the data supports it, maybe they'll do it.
0: Yeah. Um, All right. When is it to, when is the right time to specialize?
1: Yes. It is probably not an exact answer here, but how, how would you answer that?
0: Well, there's one answer that I think is exact and very, you know, obvious. And I think it's the case for most athletes. It's when every other sport tells you that you're not good enough to play. So I think that that's the way that we need to think about the majority of the people listening to this. You know, their kid is probably going to age out of every other sport. If lacrosse is their best sport and it's the one that they like the most, they're probably going to get told, with the exception of football, at some point that like, sorry, you're just not good enough to make this team, right? And that makes it, that makes it, the decision easy. With respect to with respect to when is the best time to specialize? Um, otherwise, like, and and again, we have to separate football from this. My argument would be don't. It, I, I mean, to your point, there are a lot of players that are good enough. But if you continue to make the basketball team or make the hockey team, you might not be—you might be sacrificing your opportunity to play Division One lacrosse. But you're probably not as, You're probably not sacrificing your opportunity to play college lacrosse. And I would just make the argument that the experience that most players have playing Division Two and Division Three lacrosse is probably good enough to justify the expense of not playing d1 but adding the benefit of playing your other sport through the end of your high school career that would be my that would be my advice what do you think and i know that you're you're a d1 or bus guy so you probably like cringe at that notion
1: no i i i I don't and i am a d1 guy
0: but you know think about it this way though i mean from my standpoint like 40% of the visual and lacrosse players probably won't get on the field throughout their career, maybe 30%, depending on you know the metric that you look at. So chasing the dream comes with other expenses as well, right? So, you know, is the academic opportunity that much better than the academic opportunity would have been at the D3 or D2 level that you were gonna take? Is the financial opportunity that much better? Is the experience lacrosse experience that much better? And I mean, for, I don't know what I could probably like 200 kids. The answer is no being a guy at the end of the bench at, you know, which represents probably, you know,
1: 200 kids might be with 55 people on a roster. There's 30 that don't play.
0: No, no, no. But I'm talking about over the entire, the course of their entire career at, at like the 15 to 20 programs where it's justifiable based on the value proposition of attendance there to, and on the women's side, it's probably more like 30 to 45. When you look at the quality of the programs, then it would be to, to take the D2, D3 opportunity. Yeah.
1: No, I get it. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, everyone loves high school sports, right? You love it. You do anything for your team. High school is not division one. Do you like high school? When you look back at high school and college, oftentimes high school, you've got as, as much um, fondness of your memories of those experiences and those friends and those games. As as you will, ever will, for, and for many, it's the pinnacle. So, uh, Division three, Division two is going to be every bit as fun. It's it's more just, you know, some people like to get recruited, and it's more just the ego part. But I think yeah, I mean,
0: I have so many high school football teammates who quit after their freshman year because they went from you know playing in front of crowds of ten to thirty five thousand, and then they went to a college, you know, Division one, double A football, and they were playing in front of one thousand. You know, it was just like, this isn't worth it. This isn't the experience that I wanted. Um, so, you know, just say like, keep that in mind relative to what you're willing to give up uh, in order to get back whatever it is that you're looking for. So um,
1: in conclusion, you just, you don't know. You don't, you can't completely predict where you're going to be when you're that six-year-old. I mean, my daughter Lucy scored like six or seven goals every soccer game when she was like six or seven years old. And then a couple of years later, they were like, yeah, no, you're a goalie. And of course, she wasn't playing soccer anymore. Um, you know, my son played so much soccer. I really wanted my kids to play soccer because I loved soccer and I grew up playing pickup soccer. That's what I did. It's, there was this amazing, you know, uh, group that played of men in Providence they played every day, every afternoon in the summer and, and on weekends during the year. I really, I love the sport. My kids were terrible at soccer and they played a lot of soccer. They were terrible at it. And I look back and I'm like, man, if we would have just played in the backyard, they would have been all pretty good at soccer. And I think they would have actually enjoyed it. And I think that part you would have enjoyed it more. When you get to all of a sudden you get to 14 or 15 or 16 years old, you um, you know, you, and you're not good enough at all these other sports and it's time to, you know, you, you you could have laid groundwork in really positive ways when they're younger because the truth is there's a certain, like we said, these skills are more like solutions. It's more about a, the fluency of being an athlete than it is about the reps. If you think about this analogy of learning a language in structure, you can, you can, you know, get straight A's and get a five on the AP exam and everything. And then you go down to Mexico for a spring break and you have no idea what anyone's saying to you. Whereas you could just be immersed for three or six months without ever, ever having studied anything and you'd have more of a fluency in it. And, and that's really the difference between, it doesn't mean structure is bad, structure is good. you got to be able to have literacy, but would you rather have fluency or literacy? And I think obviously we'd rather have both. Little kids, you know, at age two have like a vocabulary of two or 3,000. We taught it to them. He didn't rep it. He didn't practice it. They just did it Um, later on. They they need to be able to become literate. Um, So, and I think that that's, if we kind of look at that way, you can, I think you can have your cake and eat it too um, personally. And I think that being able to have, be a, have fun with your sports and be able to be a multi-sport athlete has so many benefits. And I agree with you. There's going to come a time and it may be when you're 14 maybe when you're 16 and maybe when you're 18 that you have to actually pick one and you pick the one that you like the best.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the only closing statement that I would share is, yeah, I don't think that either you or I represent that we have answers. I think these are questions that are so individualized to the person, to the kid and then also to the family. And so, you know, I can sit down with you. You can tell me about what your situation is and I can give you a recommendation, but I certainly cannot give a recommendation to hundreds, if not thousands of kids in terms of what their plan should be relative to to their athletic career, their athletic journey, their athletic development. Um, But I do think that this conversation, you know, hopefully has given people a couple of different things to think about.
1: Totally. And the the, the last thing, you know, actually that I just want to bring up, you kind of said earlier, is coaches all say they want multi-sport athletes. However,
0: no, they don't. They're
1: gonna recruit the best player.
0: (laughs) How many, how many guys uh ask ask Joe Amplo whether he wants Xavier Arline to be a multi sport athlete? Ask John Tillman whether uh he wants um all of the Maryland football players to be multi sport athletes. Like they want to play their sport. Uh they want former multi sport athletes.
1: Yes, that's what um who said that? Patrick said that, right? Everybody said that I stole that. I gave him credit right.
0: earlier, so I decided I could steal yeah, that. I
1: remember that that was a great tweet. They want former multi-sport athletes. Well, Terry, this was a lot of fun. Um, I know it's. Uh, I know we kind of we kind of rambled, um, but hopefully people enjoy it. And um, if people have questions, re- reach out to me at Jay Monroe at JM3 Sports. And Terry, what's your uh,
0: what's your email? T Foy at Hit me up on Twitter at Terrence Foy, T-R-E-N-C-E-F-O-Y. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Hope everyone has great holidays. And uh, Terry, always a pleasure.